Dietz and Watson's been making meats and cheeses the right way since forever. What's that mean? It means never cutting corners, ever. It means cooking, not processing. It means our Virginia brand ham that's cooked to perfection, then twice baked to layer the flavors. It takes more time, but you can taste the difference. We come to work every day to do it the right way, even if it's the hard way. Because if it's not right for us, it's not right for you. Dietz and Watson, it's a family thing since 1939. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. Now, there are little decisions to make in life, like what to wear to work and what to eat for lunch. Then there are potentially life-changing decisions, like whether to move, take a new job, break up with someone, or get married. With these big decisions, you may never face the choice before, have to sacrifice one path to choose another, and have a hard time figuring out the right way to go. As a result of the high stakes and high uncertainty, we often flounder in this kind of decision-making, sometimes failing to make any decision at all. My guests have studied those who have to make these kinds of critical choices more often, first responders and members of the military, to figure out how civilians can make better decisions in their everyday lives. Their names are Lawrence Allison and Neil Shortland, and they're the authors of Decision Time, How to Make the Choices Your Life Depends On. Today on the show, Lawrence and Neil explain the mistakes people commonly fall into when making big decisions, including getting stuck in a cycle of redundant deliberation where you forever circle around the options without ever pulling the trigger on one. They then unpack their model for more effective decision-making, including why it should follow a foxtrot pattern and how to know when it's time to stop ruminating and finally make a choice. Along the way, we discuss the importance of self-awareness in the process and what it is you need to know about yourself to make better decisions. After the show's over, check out our show notes at aom.is slash decision time. All right. Well, Lawrence Allison, welcome back to the show. Neil Shortland, welcome to the show. Thank, Thank you for having me. Thank you for having us again. So Lawrence, we've had you on the podcast in the past to discuss two very different topics. The first time we had you on, we discussed what you've learned about building social rapport from being an expert in criminal interrogation. And then the second time, we talked about what we can learn about life from the mythical labors of Hercules. You got a new book out that you've co-authored with Neil. It's called Decision Time. It's all about decision-making. So let's start off with a bit of your respective backgrounds. Let's start with you, Lawrence. Some listeners may already be familiar with you, but can you give us a little bit of review on your background? Uh, And then Neil, what's your background and how did you two wind up working together on this book? Yeah, so I'm a psychologist, broadly speaking, a forensic, but also do a lot of organizational psychology. As you said, Brett, you very kindly had us on before to talk about rapport. And my other area of interest is decision-making. So, I mean, in brief, I deal with things that include difficult communication and difficult decisions been doing that for the last 30 years and that's me neil uh yeah well thank you so um so not to age lawrence but i was actually a student of his in uh, 2011 on the master's program in liverpool 
in which, you know, I was briefly introduced to some of the, the research and the ideas around how I think real people make decisions in, in the real world. And then for me, I actually ended up moving off and, and, and working with the UK Armed Forces and then moving to America and, and studying kind of security psychology. But throughout all of it, I kind of kept this real interest in a paper Lawrence wrote in 2012 about kind of what police decision-making looked like in these kind of, you know, fast-moving counter-terrorism operations. And so I went back to Lawrence a couple of years later and kind of had this idea of, well, you know, what if we look at this, this extreme decision-making psychology, but, but let's add in this kind of military interest and angle that I kind of picked up along the way. So for the next, you know, five or I think five or six years, you know, we, we kind of worked with the army over here and the army in the UK and, and lots of different agencies studying the, the real human process of making, you know, really difficult, high uncertainty decisions. And then I think kind of, you know, seeing the positive outputs of kind of Lawrence writing rapport and, and a book really aimed at the, the general population and, and translating our kind of psychology for the for a much larger audience, we kind of had the thought that a really nice idea would be to do the same thing with decision making because the more you talk about studying decision making with with everyone in your life the more they tell you they they really need help making decisions and they wish they understood their own decisions and so that kind of brought us i think to the point of writing decision time which was you know this this translational piece of all of these soldiers and police and fire and all these difficult decisions we'd studied and, and trying to use that to help you know people in their in their everyday lives with the with the decisions that they kind of focus on and, and struggle with okay so the, the- the, the type of decisions you're focusing on in this book are not everyday decisions. They're not like, what am I going to have for lunch? Uh, as you said, Neil, these are extreme decisions, like 1% of decisions people have to make. In the military, in the police, I can see the type of things that people have to make a decision, whether to engage with an enemy, shoot, not shoot. For an average person, what kind of decisions, extreme decisions does a regular person have to face? The book is written, there's lots of books about decision making, you know, and how to improve your life. But as Neil said, We've been dealing, in my case, the last 30 years with people that make life-changing decisions. And although that is within military, security services, law enforcement, so on, nonetheless, we often find ourselves at a crossroads where we're making a really difficult life-changing decision. And it could be something as benign as what house will I buy? But that said, sometimes these decisions are really, really important and are really difficult that might be to do with whether to have cancer treatment or an an end-of-life decision, or something that is heavier, that is consequential, that is not reversible, that is high stakes, that does carry uncertainty and does carry risk. So they're the, I guess, less than 1% of decisions that we might face, but that are going to change our lives. And that's why we wrote the book. Yeah, so, okay, so the stakes are high, a lot of uncertainty. Another characteristic of these decisions, oftentimes you just have to make that decision once in your entire life. And nice. so you don't have any patterns to look back on on how to make the decision because you haven't faced it before and you probably never will again. I think one of the things that, that I'd, I'd add is, is so from when we were doing the original work with the soldiers, I remember talking to a, a kind of a like a VA clinician about the kind of decisions that we were specifically focusing on. And, and, and the way she phrased them, which I always really liked, which she called them kind of, you know, shoulda, woulda, coulda decisions. And, and, and what made these decisions that we studied so tricky was that when the people made the decision, you could realistically see that both options could be good and both options could be bad. And, and, and very few decisions actually truly present in that way. And it makes them very difficult to make because 
even if you choose, you know, path A, it's very easy to convince yourself that path B also, you know, could have been as good. And I think when we look at our everyday decision making and the decisions we make in our life, you know, it's not every decision that presents itself that way. But there are, as Lawrence said, you know, these these life changing, path changing decisions we all face, maybe around taking a job, maybe around ending a relationship, maybe around moving country for love or career or whatever it may be. And if it's those decisions that both options could be really good or could be really bad. You've never had to make that calculation or that decision before. And there is that high uncertainty. You know, we've all experienced that. But as Lawrence said, it's a rarer form of decision. But the impact and and potential of these decisions is so, so much higher. And then the other thing that makes choice so difficult, and and from a psychological standpoint, is in order to choose one course of action, you necessarily have to sacrifice what the other course of action is offering you. And very few forms of decisions make you have to do that. And it's a specific form of decision-making, but it is psychologically, I think, the most difficult because you have to sacrifice, you have to argue to yourself, and you're starting from a place of really not knowing whether A or B is the right choice or the right outcome for you. You know, just to to follow up on Neil's thing, just by way of giving an example, we talk about in the book, we compare, which might be a weird comparison, but we talk about the Thai cave rescue, where what Neil was saying is, if you take one course of action and you send a seal in to go and save the kids, once you've committed to that course of action, it could go wrong, but you're not going to know whether that goes wrong until you commit. And in the same way, it might seem a ridiculous comparison, but you know, if you've been in a relationship for many, many years and you decide to end that relationship, you can't then not end it. You can't have both pathways. You can't have your cake and eat it. Once you've made that commitment, those decisions that are irreversible are particularly difficult because you can't play out that parallel universe version of that decision that you didn't make or that choice that you didn't take and see whether it would have been better or worse. And that is what often causes hesitation. So one of the other things I want to emphasize is this that often it's important to commit to what it is that you're going to do because a lot of people spend their lives waiting and thinking but not acting. So the other thing that this book touches on quite a lot is this thorny problem that we've seen a lot in emergency services, law enforcement and so on, that they're not actually making erroneous decisions. They are failing to commit to a course of action. And you you see this time and time again, whether it's a terrorist event or a disaster management thing, organizations are often criticized for being slow to act or not acting at all, rather than making a really catastrophically bad decision. It's about pace, timing, and accuracy. Yeah, I want to dig more into decision hesitation, decision inertia, because I thought that was really interesting. But before we do, in your experience, when you've looked at the research literature, and also just in your own experience, when an organization or an individual faces one of these extreme decisions where it's super uncertain, you only have to make it once, the out, the stakes are high. What's the typical decision pattern or method that people fall back onto and why do they fall short? Well, we've, I mean, we've done quite a lot of work on the difference between novices and elite performers in this regard. And there are basically four mistakes that novices make that elite performers don't. The first, and actually all of these things are about proportionality and moderation. I mean, it's a bit like the rapport book where we were talking about anything that's extreme is usually bad. Uh, It's the same kind of principle here. And what we know that our elite performers do are, first of all, when they're trying to weigh up what it is they are dealing with and diagnose the actual problem itself, they will develop two or three plausible 
explanations for what's going on. Novices either develop one and stick to it and confirm everything in that one direction, or they develop a huge proliferation of possibilities and they can't juggle them in their mind. So proportionate development of three or four options to explain what's going on and then digging into them to decide which, you know, which best accounts for the situation. That's the first thing. The second thing is time management. Our elite performers are neither too slow nor too quick. They know they need to ask about time or consider time as a, a factor that they need to consider. And if they think that the window of opportunity is collapsing quickly, they will go with the best option that they can given that time constraint. They also are able to calculate if they do have more time. And if you do, you should use it. If you've got more time to firm up a situation, you should use it. Novices either act too too quickly or too slowly and often don't ask about time at all. The third thing is that our experts are able to adapt. So novices suffer from what we call entrainment. They will develop an idea. They will stick with that idea. And even in the face of compelling evidence to suggest they should change tack, they don't. Our experts are able to recognise and respond to those cues rapidly and change accordingly. And then the fourth thing is the ability to revise the plan, the ability to throw out throw out the plan that was developed that was right for then but isn't right for now. So those are the four sort of mistakes people make. Too much faffing around trying to figure it out, not considering time at all or just pondering forever, failing to adapt to, to, to the new circumstances and being unprepared to revise. Our elite performers don't do that. But I've got to say, our elite performers are rare. Why? Because not off, you know, if this is 1% of the, the, the times that you have to make a decision, as Neil said, you don't have that lexicon of experience behind you to be used to, be, to, to dealing with these novel or unique events. Yeah, and I think most people, what they do when they face a tough decision, at least this is my, my method, is I'll, I'll go online and see, well, did someone else have this problem? Yep. And see how they made the decision. But like, I mean, it's I mean, it's kind of useful, but in the end, it's not, I usually find it not very useful because that person's situation is so unique that it's like, well, okay, this I, this doesn't apply to me. Like, I, I don't, I, I can't do anything with this. Well, I think that's a, it's, it's a really good point. And it's an interesting method, Brett. And I think it links to kind of, I think one of the points that we'll, we'll hopefully talk about throughout the interview, but one of the big things we we emphasize about these forms of decisions is that they are they are often deeply personal, as in as in what the right decision is varies based on who the decision maker is. So, so to give you an example, you know, when we were writing the book, it was, you know, kind of at the start of the of the of the COVID nineteen pandemic, and one of the things that a lot of people were talking about was how you know young couples were handling the decision to get married or not get married or delay or do it by Zoom and, and all of these kind of things. And, and, and looking at that decision, I think, you know, you could always, you could look at what other people were doing. You could look at, were they doing it via Zoom? You could look at whether they were delaying three years, five years, 10 years, whatever it was. But to make that decision correctly, really, it's just what matters is what is right for you in that moment. And that's one of the things I think the book really emphasizes on is that it is it is always good to to look at other people and think about maybe what other people have done but at the end of the day you know what we preach is kind of this idea of you know know thyself and so it really comes down to i think what what makes you be able to make that decision is being able to look inside of yourself and know what ma- truly matters to you because it may be different to what these other people have done and how other people in the past have kind of made that decision in that moment 
Well, let's circle back to this idea of decision inertia. Why is it when we face these big decisions with high stakes, lots of uncertainty that we typically don't do anything? Like what's going on cognitively to, to cause that? Well, what people tend to do is they they go through a process that we call redundant deliberation. It's really weird, actually, because it's using a lot of cognitive effort for no gain. They will think about option B and think about all the permutations for option B. They will think about option A and all the permutations for option A, and they will just not be able to decide between the two because they don't want to commit. You know, They don't want to end that relationship. They don't want to have that cancer treatment because not having it could be better or staying with the same person could be better. So they sort of in perpetuity, just keep circling around and around these these plausible options. So, I mean, my view that I use myself, two things that I ask myself that I think are useful when you're faced with these are, one, do I have to decide now? You know, you need to understand whether that decision is fast-paced or slow-paced. And if it is fast-paced, maybe you need to make a decision now. But most decisions aren't super fast. And so, therefore, you do need to slow things down and, and seek more information. But you can't put an infinite timeline on it. You have to put something that's proportionate. The second thing that I always ask myself is this. What is the goal? What do I want this to end up looking like? And, you know, we've found it with police before or, or, or even just everyday decisions. People get fixated on the decision, but not the end point, not the goal. What is it ultimately that you want out of this? And, Neil, I don't know if you want to talk about your own personal experience with your wedding, because I know we went through it ourselves but you know there was a lot of debate but when you articulated what the goal was the decision presented itself easily so i don't know if you want to give that example well i mean i i can because i think it's it's interesting so when you when we think about indecision and i think one of the really interesting things about about i mean lawrence's work historically on this and and some of the, the things that we brought into the book is you know Psychology is is kind of the emphasis on on stimulus response, and all of most of psychological research is set up to force the person to choose something and, and assess the choice that they made. So the idea of I guess studying the absence of a choice is actually quite psychologically odd. But one of the things that we see is it, it's really really pervasive, and you see it you know in in your in your in everyday life, and there are, there are different ways that people try and avoid decisions from you know avoiding it completely to you know, knowing what they want, but never, you know, as Lawrence mentioned earlier, never actually behaviorally committing to it. And it's it's a really easy pattern to fall into. And when I think about your question, Brett, you know, what, how do we kind of overcome it? And what does it, what, what kind of causes it? I think the, the thing that I always come back to, I think is, is fear and courage being, you know, being essential here, because when you look at a, a true, a, a true difficult decision, so you know what we would call a, a least worst decision that we kind of talk about in the book. So you know that they're all the examples we gave earlier: leaving relationships, changing jobs, moving countries, you know, divorces, how to have a marriage, all this kind of stuff. You know, choosing something and committing to a course of action requires great courage because you know that in doing so, you're actively losing something. By choosing the choice that you've made, and, and so I, I will give the you know the the example that Lawrence gave that I think a lot of young couples faced in in twenty twenty. You know, so I was I was with my my now wife. Spoiler, I guess, to the decision we made, but we had that you know that that horrible decision in, in May of twenty twenty of do we get married you know via Zoom or some form of kind of stripped down you know COVID wedding or or do we delay and have you know the big hundred person hundred and fifty person wedding that we'd spent you know two years planning. 
and we ended up choosing to, to get married via Zoom. And, and why I say that courage is so important is that when we made that choice, and so, you know, we, we knew that we were going to do it, you know, on the original date, just, just a few people completely socially distanced with no family coming, no friends flying over, you know, we knew that we were, we were, it was going to hurt. And you know, that it is a difficult decision. And even though you know that you've chosen the right thing, you still have to have courage because you know that you've sacrificed things that are really, really important to you. And I think that's what really difficult choices require of you. They really require courage because you know that even if you think or know you're choosing something that's right, you're still losing something that mattered to you. And that's why these decisions are so difficult. And so I think when it comes to this idea of overcoming inertia, of committing to decisions and making them in the real world, you know, one of the things that Lawrence and I talk about a lot in the book is just the value of courage. And that's because, you know, fear of loss is such an innate human thing. We are designed to protect our resources. We hate the idea of loss. But a choice requires you to embrace loss and, and stare loss in the face because whatever you do, whatever you choose, you will have to lose something. You will have to sacrifice something. And so it's this real balance, I think, of being brave enough to tolerate the loss in the knowledge that you are embracing the, the greater good or embracing the right choice for the right reasons. No, I, I've, my own experience, the thing that causes me to put off decisions is that rumination trap that Lawrence was talking about. And like you said, it's, it's really sneaky because it feels like you're doing something. It's like, I'm really thinking about this, but you just, you're just going in circles over and just over and over again. You have to decide, like, I got to make a decision. This is not doing anything. You have to catch yourself doing it and then just make the decision and move forward. There's this kind of almost this, this curve of, of diminishing returns, right? And so we, we've, done, we've planned this study recently where we kind of, you know, we, we, we get people to make a, a series of decisions and you can give, we ask them if they want more information, right? And there are about five different information injects. And what's really interesting is some people say they want no information whatsoever and they just dive right in. And that's, that's, not, that's not good. And then some people want all of the information and eventually you have to kind of say, there's no more information, just, you know, come on, <laughs> come on and do the decision. And, and the Goldilocks in this is someone kind of in the middle who, who takes some early information and really helps themselves understand the situation, invests a little bit of time, you know, early on, but then knows that anything more that they're getting now isn't really helping them. And now is the time to just kind of get out of that redundant deliberation and just move on to the kind of the making of the decision. And it's kind of something interesting. I think like Lawrence, if, if you might be a, might want to talk about this from some of the work that we've done together, but we, we kind of identified this interesting kind of foxtrot pattern that kind of, you know, some of our better decision makers engaged in, which is where they kind of were, I think, what is it like? Slow, slow, quick, quick. My, my dancing knowledge might be a little off. That's, yes. Slow, slow, quick, quick. Slow, slow, quick, quick, slow, actually. Okay. <laughs> So, so what this was is, is we were doing a study with military um, or police, I think it was, and looking at the different patterns that people use to make decisions. And what we found was there was this one pattern that, that people engaged in, which was kind of fast, fast, slow, slow, which was that they moved through the, the information gathering stage really, really quickly. But then they got really stuck on the actual process of having to choose between the options. And then there was this kind of more, I think it was the more senior officers who actually demonstrated this pattern, which was kind of this idea of this slow, slow, quick, quick, which was that they took more time to gather the information. They took a bit more time to comprehend the situation. And then when it came to making the decision, they were much faster to be able to choose what the right option to them was. 
We're going to take a quick break for your word from our sponsors. Wedding season is coming up, and if you are preparing for the big day, I know wedding planning can be really intimidating, but finding the perfect suit shouldn't be. Indochino makes it easy to get a fully customizable suit right from your home. Don't just wear any suit on your big day. Wear a custom made-to-measure suit. Suits start at just $499, which is about the same price you'd pay for an off-the-rack suit at a department store. And they've also got custom made-to-measure shirts starting at just $89. So I've talked about my Indochino suit on the podcast before. They've been a longtime podcast sponsor. It's navy blue. The measuring process was super easy. They got these video guides you follow. You'll need another set of hands to help you out with that. But the really fun part is customizing it. Got to customize how I wanted the lapels on the jacket, the pockets, the lining. I went no pleats on the pants on this suit. A lot of fun. And then in a few weeks, you have a made-to-measure custom suit sent directly to your door. When planning your wedding, get a suit as unique as you with Indochino. Go to Indochino.com and use code MANLINESS to get 10% off any purchase of $399 or more. That's I-N-D-O-C-H-I-N-O.com, promo code MANLINESS. All right, so if you're like me, you've probably signed up for a whole bunch of stuff that has a recurring monthly fee. Subscriptions to newsletters, subscriptions to services that you use online, uh, could be a streaming service, something like that. You sign up for it and then you forget about it. And then every month you're getting charged and charged and charged and they just all add up and you have a hard time trying to figure out, where did I sign up for this? I don't know where this is coming from. Let me tell you, there's an app that can help you with that. It's called Rocket Money. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills so that you can grow your savings. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has saved a total of $500 million in canceled subscriptions, saving members up to $740 a year when using all of the app's features. I had a chance to use Rocket Money and it works. You connect your account to it and then it goes through your accounts and helps you find those recurring subscription fees that maybe you forgot about and then you can cancel them and save yourself a bit of money each month. Stop wasting money in things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash manliness. That's rocketmoney.com slash manliness, rocketmoney.com slash manliness. Daylight saving time is starting up again. The goal of this is to give us more daylight from March through November. By setting our clocks forward, it may feel like there are more hours in the day, but if you're hiring, it doesn't necessarily help you find qualified candidates for your roles any sooner. There is only one way to do that, ZipRecruiter. And right now you can try it for free at ziprecruiter.com slash manliness. ZipRecruiter works around the clock to help you find qualified candidates. Once you post your job on ZipRecruiter, they send it to 100 plus job sites so you can reach more of the right people. ZipRecruiter smart technology also quickly scans thousands of resumes to identify people whose skills and experience match your job. Spring forward with a new hiring partner, ZipRecruiter, and find top talent sooner. See why four out of five employers who post a job on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash manliness. Once again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash manliness. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Picture that thing you've always wanted to learn. All right, you got that in your head? Now picture learning it from the person who's literally the best at it in the world. That's what you get with Masterclass. This year, learn from the best to become your best with Masterclass. Masterclass offers over 180 world-class instructors, and many of these instructors are former AOM podcast guests. You can learn negotiation from Chris Voss, leadership skills from Jocko Willink, how to master your habits with James Clear. Plus, every new membership comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee, so there's no risk. 
So recently I went through the masterclass on negotiation with Chris Voss, a lot of useful information in there, talked about the value of known in negotiation, how to use your body language and speech patterns to get your best out of a negotiation. Very well done. I really enjoyed it and got a lot out of it. Right now, listeners of our podcast can get an additional 15% off an annual membership at masterclass.com slash AOM. Get 15% off right now at masterclass.com slash AOM masterclass.com slash AOM. Check out the masterclass on negotiation with Chris Voss. And now back to the show. You devote a chapter and you, you mentioned it early on about if you want to make better decisions, you have to know thyself. Uh, how does greater self-awareness improve decision-making? Like what, what are we trying, what do we need to know about ourselves in order to make better decisions? Well, we're certainly one of the things that we're repeatedly finding is that there's this this attribute called maximization or minimization, which in very, really simple terms is if you tend to be a maximizer, you're the sort of person that wants everything to work out really well. So you find it very hard to tolerate a poor outcome or even an outcome where there's two options, both of them look bad, and you're not really prepared to even pick the least bad one. So there's, there's really bad and bad, but you just don't want the bad one. And, and people that are maximizers, we tend to find, suffer more from this kind of redundant deliberation or constant rumination because they're thinking, you know, basically feeling regretful about a future scenario that they, they, they find intolerable. Whereas minimizers, which is the kind of alternative sort of thinking approach, is, okay, this is not ideal, but I'd rather have this least bad option than the really bad one. So, so part of this is knowing whether you're a minimizer or a maximizer. And they're not necessarily one better than the other, but if you score very high on maximization, you tend to be the sort of person that will ruminate in perpetuity. So that's one function. The other thing that we know quite a lot about is the thing called need for closure. And in simple terms, the idea of that is if you are the sort of person that requires a lot of predictability, certainty, order, decisiveness, you know, you want to know exactly what time you're going to meet at the restaurant, how many people are going to be there, what's going to be on the menu, da, 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 da. That type of thing can slow people down as well. So people that can tolerate ambiguity, which is the opposite of need for closure, tend to be faster time decision makers. So, I mean, but the broad concept about knowing thyself, and I think Neil spoke about this earlier, is, is knowing what your value system is, you know, where you want to stack your tokens, what matters to you most, and having good insight into that and being able to articulate that and face yourself in the mirror and think about it will help you identify the absolute critical function of decision-making, which is what is my goal? Where do I want to end up? What am I prepared to sacrifice and what I'm not? And Neil, you know, did a lot of work on what we call sacred and secular values. So just a little segue on that. Where you have a sacred value, it's something which is non-negotiable. So if we talk about military sacred values, you might have a sacred value of leave no man behind. A secular value is something that you'd like to retain but isn't critical and might be negotiable. But where you have a problem is where two sacred values collide. So in military ops, we found that if you've got the sacred value of leave no man behind and complete the mission, and we design a scenario which has both of those colliding, that's where you find it difficult to tease those two things apart. So sacred values are the ones that are really tr tricky to negotiate. One other thing I just want to add about the foxtrot thinking, which I think is interesting, uh, and to just reinforce this point for listeners, stacking your tokens at the front end of the thinking is a good idea. To think about what it is that you are dealing with carefully and diagnose what you're what you're dealing with is really important. That then enables you to speed up. Well, yeah, Lawrence, we talked about this the sacred secular problem uh, in our 
conversation about Hercules, mm-hmm. Hercules faced some decisions where he had sacred uh, values in conflict with each other and it made decisions tough. Yeah. Yeah. So I think well, without segueing into the Heracles thing, we had that exact situation, didn't we? Where, you know, he, he'd left one of his compadres behind after a scrap and that was a difficult thing to do. It kind of ruined him and, and created a, a degree of moral injury. And that's not uncommon in, in soldier scenarios. But uh, Neil may have something to say about this as well. Well, no, I think it's all tethered to the idea of kind of, of of knowing thyself. And so, the one thing that I've heard most of the the feedback I've had from the from the book from family member and fr- and friends is is they call me and they say, "Oh, you wouldn't believe it, you know, I'm a maximizer." And I'm like, "Well, well, yes, objectively, I probably could have told you that." Um, and you know, they always say, "Well, it's a bad thing," and I was, it's, "It's not a bad thing. Being a maximizer or or is, isn't a bad thing, but." Knowing yourself means that you know what your miss is going to be. And so what we talk about in the decision making is that, you know, there are times to be a maximizer and there are times when you really can't maximize. And what you want to avoid is the attempt to maximize in a non or unmaximizable situation. Right. And so I think it's really kind of one of the important things that that knowing thyself means is you kind of you know the pattern you're going to fall into. You know what your personality trait is and what you're going to want from a decision. And sometimes it's it's about knowing that the decision that you're facing just isn't going to let you have everything. And accepting that and being able to to move on. And I think that that links to to what Lawrence was just saying, this kind of the second part of, of knowing thyself, which is literally about you know knowing thy values. And one of the one of the formative books, as we were writing the original uh, book, we wrote a, a book called Conflict, How Soldiers Make Impossible Decisions, which kind of was our, our platform for writing Decision Time, it was Mark Monson's book, you know, The Subtle Art. The, basically, the art to a happy life or the art to, you know, to, to happy living is knowing the one thing that you care about so much that you're willing to sacrifice everything else. And, and that, I think, has always been our kind of framework of knowing thyself and this discussion of, of sacred values is is looking at a decision and knowing the one value, if you can, the one value that absolutely matters more to you than anything else. And it's it's really difficult to do. And, you know, we give examples in the book from, from people that we've met and people that we've worked with. And, you know, we have, we have friends who we've watched face these kind of decisions. You know, you're given this brand new promotion or this brand new job opportunity. And it's really important to you that, you know, you, you chase your career and you, you have value in your work and you achieve everything you can, but, but that's running directly against something else that might be, you know, investment in the family and spending time with your young children and your wife as they grow up and they do these foundational moments of taking their first steps, saying their first words. And what a good decision maker has to be able to do is to sit there and work out, I have two values going against each other. And Whatever choice I make, I'm going to run over one of those values. So which ones, which one can I absolutely not sacrifice in any way? Is it, you know, myself, my career, my confidence and my identity, or is it me as a family member, me as a father, me as a, you know, contributing to the household? And and if people aren't able to to know thyself and and know that value, then and and links back to the you know the Heracles, you know, example that Lawrence gave in your prior podcast of, of you know, you actually risk this idea of of moral injuries. You know, when you make a decision that sacrifices something that's truly, truly important to you. That's a that's a specific form of trauma that you can have, you know, from making the wrong decision in a in a crucial moment. And so all of our our model of decision-making. It's all based on first and foremost, knowing who you are, knowing your patterns and your tendencies and your psychology, and then knowing, really being able to work out what what actually matters to you when it comes to making this decision, You know, whether it's the goals or, or the values. Well, let's move on and talk about your uh, decision-making model. It's called STAR. It's an acronym. 
And the S in STAR stands for situational awareness or storytelling. What's involved in developing good situational awareness? I mean, any questions people should be asking when they're face a decision, they're trying to get their bearings on the situation? So, so when it comes to situational awareness, I guess there are kind of, a, you know, the original model is that there are kind of three stages of situational awareness, right? Which is kind of identifying, you know, the patterns in the environment or cues in the environment that matter, webbing them together to kind of get an understanding of what's going on. And then this third layer is kind of using that to, to project you know, what will happen if you do action A or do action B? And as Lawrence kind of mentioned earlier, the thing about situational awareness is it's about not just going all in, originally just going all in on this one assessment of the situation, having adaptability and the flexibility to think about what are the other factors that could be going on? What are the different interpretations of this situation? And we, we talk about in, in the book, one of these early trainings that, that Lawrence gave, and I think at the time I was kind of helping alongside, but we gave this early training to, to police officers kind of, you know, policing the tube during the, I think it was the 2012 or 2014 uh, Olympics in London. And what we talked to them about was this idea of, you know, when you're stressed, when you're tired, when you're hot, when you've got all of these things going on, you know, you're running out of resources and the natural pattern is to think you know what's going on, to not test it, to not think of alternatives and just to basically just go all in on this, you know, this one assessment of the situation. And I think kind of in the in the S model of our of our star, what we really preach about is being open and flexible to thinking or holding in your mind, are there two or three potential explanations for this situation, potential interpretations of, of what I'm seeing in front of me and what this means. And, and, you know, the extreme of that is something that, you know, Lawrence and I have, have, have talked about, and we, we recently put a paper out about, you know, the, the best decision makers are, you know, when they have to be, they're kind of grim storytellers. They have imagination, you know, they're really able to think critically about what their situation is. And so with the S stage of the model, it's, it's, it's finding a calibration between these two extremes that Lawrence mentioned earlier, right? The first is just, the first extreme is just seeing something, thinking, you know, exactly what's going on and diving right in with this kind of singular interpretation of the situation. This has happened. And I think it's going to be this. On the very, very other end is not really knowing or committing to any kind of interpretation and just thinking that, well, there are a hundred things that could explain this. And I can't really move forward because I don't really know possibly anything that's going on in this situation. And in the middle, there's this kind of sweet spot of being able to identify a few plausible explanations and taking the time to kind of game those explanations against each other to really get the best understanding of the situation that you can, because everything about a decision stems from what you actually think is going on and how you're interpreting kind of the information that's in front of you. The key takeaways from that, I think, are don't over-ruminate about every possibility. You know, conjure in your head two or three possibilities and make sure that one of them, which I know is a bit unpleasant, but one of them should be, what's the worst case scenario here? What is the, you know, if I think this this this, this is going on, okay, I don't really want to go there and think it's maybe this bad, but you know what? Perhaps I do need to think it's maybe this bad because then the shock of it being that reality is less damning and you are prepared to deal with it. So simple takeaways, think about what it is you're dealing with, have no more than three. I mean, that's a bit of a rule of thumb, but it's hard to have in your mind more than kind of three possible situational models about what you're dealing with 
make sure one of them is the worst possible scenario. Okay. And what's interesting that all of this, like you don't, you're admitting that you don't know what the situation is exactly because you have three different options. Yeah. So, so you are alive to the possibility that there are three ways to explain what it is that you're seeing. So say you want to end a relationship or you, you, you know, you're, I think we, t- we talk about a, a mastectomy there, you know, whether you're going to have your breasts removed in relation to cancer, you want to sort of think about what does this look like? What's the worst case scenario? What do I value? Maybe this could happen. This could happen. And this could happen. Three options, best case scenario, worst case scenario, somewhere in between, but don't ruminate on that forever. At that point, it gives you some kind of idea about how much, you know, what work you need to do to disentangle whether it's more likely to be one, two or three. In the same way that perhaps someone that's dealing with an illness is going to be looking at it. You know, someone comes to the doctor and they present with various symptoms. That doctor should be thinking, well, this could be this bad. It could be cancer. And, and therefore, what do we need to do to firm up whether it is? What tests do we need to do that? However, it could be something benign. And that's a plausible scenario as well. And it's at that stage that you should seek to interrogate information that will help you push forward one of those three scenarios more than the other. But like I say, you know, when you're considering these existential pathways, you do have to contemplate the worst case scenario. It it gives you much more stretch in your imagination to be able to deal deal with what is going to eventually be coming at you. All right. So the next part in the STAR model, T, stands for time mastery. Why is when we make a decision important? And then what happens if your timing is off? Because if it's imminent and the decisions move past you, you're knackered, basically. I mean, it is. it does surprise me how often people don't even consider time. I mean, our really poor decision makers don't even ask about it. They don't think, well, do I have to decide now? How much time have I got? They just think they've got all the time in the world. And, you know, for most of us, most of the time, happily, we do have a bit of time to think about a decision. I mean, you know, in military situations, that isn't always the case. But sometimes even in our own lives, there is there is a there is a time limit on which we should really. I mean, I've spoken to countless people, police officers that have stayed in the same job for years. And for you know, every year they're saying, oh, you know, I kind of feel a bit burnt out with this job and maybe I should change and I'm not giving enough time to my family. What do you think? And then we'll go through all the possible scenarios that they could do and maybe they could change this or they could change to another unit blah, blah. and then they'll come back a month later same thing and again and again and again and if you don't have that externally imposed time pressure on you with a shoot no shoot decision you can just keep extending that deadline forever so ask do i have to decide now more often than not you don't have to decide imminently but if you don't have to decide imminently then you need to start thinking about what is a reasonable amount of time to allocate to this decision? And a pretty good tip to tell you that you have now run out of time is if you keep asking the same questions and you keep getting the same information, then you really don't want to be waiting a lot longer because there is no new information and you do now need to decide. What happens if you have to make a decision now? Is there a, a heuristic that people can use to know like what's the right thing to do or the, the best thing to do in that situation? Very simple terms, least worst first. This is bad. This is awful. Let's go with bad. If there's a huge time pressure and you absolutely have to make a decision right now and you honestly are staring at two or three horrible or bad options, the only thing to be able to do is really say to yourself, what is the one option that I or the one miss that I cannot tolerate? 
And that's that kind of that, if you can do it, that's that kind of sacred value. And under time pressure, that may be the only thing you have time to, to try and reflect on or calculate. Okay. So the next part of STAR is A, and that's adaptation. Uh, what do you guys mean by that? Well, I think adaptations are, are really critical stage because I think when we, if we, it kind of links a little bit to the first stage, which is situational awareness, but there's, um, there's some old psychology in kind of the 1990s on, on NASA. I think it's NASA errors. And it found that most of the bad decisions or, or, or error based decisions in these kind of these, this pilot sample was not because they didn't understand what was going on. It's because they understood what was going on. Then the environment changed and they were unable to update or reevaluate what was going on when new information was coming in. And so I think one of the things about kind of the, when we look at these decisions in the, in the real world and these kind of, you know, these complicated decisions that, that people are facing, you know, they're iterative, they're moving moments in time. And so sometimes the scene does change and sometimes the situation does change. And what we often see is that people fail to adapt and, and update their, their way of thinking. And there's a lot of, you know, I think this links probably the, the point of the book that I think links to a lot of the, you know, the core psychology around decision makers is driven by heuristics and biases and cognitive closure. And the fact that the, you know, we are, we are, we are cognitive misers in the sense that we're always trying to confirm what we currently think is correct anyway, because it's easier than having to re-update and re-evaluate and, and reconsider what we think we're staring at. And so the adaptation phase is encouraging people that even if you've made the best assessment of the situation, you can. And even if you have you know, understood your relationship with time and when a decision needs to be made and, and assuming that you haven't, you know, missed the decision window, you know, be open to updating your assessment of what's going on, be open to new information, you know, be willing to, to ask if things on the ground have changed, if your current understanding is no longer in date and needs to be updated. And it's just an exercise in, in almost good cognition, you know, good cognitive healthy behavior to reevaluate, re-update, reintegrate, and just to check that what you think is going on and, and assessed is, go, is going on is still there. And it's really difficult. So, you know, one of the examples we have in the book is, is this interesting case of this guy, Jack, who, you know, he's offered this job out of the blue and it's kind of a, a shiny new job with a shiny new promotion. And, and if anyone's ever been offered a job or, or offered, you know, an opportunity, suddenly the way you evaluate the current job, you know, you're almost looking for the negatives now. You know, you've been offered this shiny new thing and, you know, it changes the way you look at everything around you, right? And that's the brain, that's the mind trying to make the decision easier by stripping away uncertainty and just closing itself off to, you know, any alternative way of thinking. So, so when we make decisions, our cognitive structure is sometimes working against us to make things simpler. And so adaptation in dynamic and, and difficult decisions is absolutely essential because people need to keep checking that their assumptions are correct. Keep checking the situation is what they think it is. Is there anything new? Is there anything different? Is there a bit of information that really needs me to think differently, that something else is actually going on here, that something has changed since I started trying to work through this decision. And, you know, it's just one of those critical stages that, you know, we often, we often don't see in that, that old research has found it, our own research has found it, that, yeah, you know, people really need to focus on being adaptive and, and making sure that their assessment is always in time with kind of, you know, what they're facing. So the final part of STAR is R, and that stands for revision and resilience. And this can be a really hard part because 
often our tendency is after we've made a decision, we've taken action and we're going, we're, we're doing it. Even though we get new information and we, we see like, oh, we should probably adapt. It's really hard to go back on your decision. He's like, well, I, I made the decision. I got to stick with it. So how do you figure out whether or not you should stick with a decision or you should bail and change your mind and do something else? I mean, well, the way, so it's a really interesting conundrum. And again, I think it speaks to just the way, just the ethos of of the kind of psychology we talk about in the book. And Lawrence mentioned it earlier. I think, you know, nothing is is good in extremes. And so in the, in the resilience chapter and revision, you know, we really talk about this idea of, of you know, of change in its extremes, right? And so, and so one extreme of change is, is someone who, the minute they face a difficulty, the minute they face a hardship, abandons course and immediately, you know, goes to goes to find a new course of action and, and decides that their plan is a failure. And, and, you know, in psychology, there's a lot of, you know, theories and research on, you know, things like grit. So Angela Duckworth, you know, her idea of grit is this kind of this, this golden trait that predicts success is people's ability to be gritty and work through things. And, you know, we talk about, you know, desirable difficulties as, you know, being able to work through difficult moments and, and, and difficult decisions often require difficult moments you know so so the the wedding example i gave earlier you know after making the decision there were difficulties you know in telling people what your choice is you know there's difficulties and if you change a job it's not immediately amazing sometimes and in the first 6 to 12 months there's difficulties you know if you leave a relationship there's difficulties right and so there's this psychological idea that you know you have to work through those and that's you know that that's critical to success and it is. And then on the other side, there's a, another organizational psychologist who kind of studied this idea of persistence and identified this really interesting part of persistence called inappropriate persistence, which is kind of this idea of just persisting for the sake of persisting because you just want to persist, right? Which is almost like the complete opposite end of the spectrum. And you're not persisting for a reason. You're not persisting for a purpose. You're merely persisting because you don't want to not persist at something. And again, that extreme of non-revision is equally detrimental and equally harmful. You know, if you change jobs and you move countries and two years in, you hate it and you still are unhappy and still nothing is going correct, maybe there's a point to reevaluating and coming home. And so it comes down to the question that you asked, Brett, which, you know, how do you juggle and how do you know what the right balance of those two polar ends of the scale are. And I think it comes back to in the way that we kind of talked about it in the book is knowing why you're persisting, right? So so when you're experiencing a difficulty, a desirable difficulty or otherwise, why are you being gritty? What are you being what are you persisting in purpose of or in 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 the quest for? And I think it comes back to that idea of are you persisting for something that is sacred, that is important, that means something to you? Are you persisting in line with your values and your goals? And if you're not, and you just find yourself persisting because of a, a fear of non-persisting, well, then you may be in that state that you're no longer being driven by the right motives and by the right motivations. So it all goes back to knowing thyself. I think it really does. And I think, you know, I think the more that we we talk about the book and the more that we, you know, the more that we we hear from, you know, the, the readers that the that have that have, you know, been very kind to, to, you know, share their thoughts on it with us. That's what I think it comes down to from from well, one of the big parts, I think, when we wrote it and, and what people are, are reading from it is the value of knowing thyself. And, and and it's difficult because 
I think especially if you're young and, and you know, you're thinking about your values, you know, values change, you know, knowing yourself, the personality may be slightly more, more rigid, but things that are sacred to you, that matter to you, that are really important to you, they change. And it, it's almost like working out. It's something that you, you do need to consciously often think about, think about what matters to you, reflect on it update what is actually sacred and important to me. And Lawrence and I, we had a a long walk on the beach a few weeks ago where we talked about our values and our goals. And it's interesting that I have kind of, you know, as I've grown up, I'm, I'm experiencing, you know, sacred value shifts in real time. And you can't make a good decision unless you know what the most important thing to you is. Because, you know, the real risk here, I think, you know, the, the one of the risks is not making a decision. But the other risk is making a decision driven by a value that you think is the sacred one and finding out after you've made the decision that it really isn't. And that's not a that's not a state I think we'd we'd wish on anyone. And, and something that, you know, really this book is aimed at trying to help people avoid. So while I think the star model is critical because I think it it really talks about what I think real life difficult decisions look like. We can't take away from just the importance of knowing who you are and and what really matters to you when you're kind of looking at making these kind of, you know, fork in the road, you know, life-changing decisions. Well, Lawrence Neal, this has been a great conversation. Where can people go to learn more about the book and your work? Atwood, uh, the book is currently available on uh, amazon.co.uk and on Audible. And uh, for any American listeners, I believe in about a few months, it will be out for the, uh, for the stateside audience. And any of our work on kind of the, the operational side of things, so training with police, military, law enforcement, we have our Ground Truth website, which Lawrence can correct me if I get it wrong. It's ground-truth.co.uk, but that's where we kind of you know, work with all of the practitioners on our decision-making trainings and our, our, our rapport trainings and any of that, or, or our, our Twitter feeds, if you, I guess, want to see our opinions on, uh, well, current events. Fantastic. Well, Lawrence Neal, thanks for your time. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, Brett. Brett, great to speak to you. My guests today were Lawrence Allison and Neil Shortland. They're the authors of the book, Decision Time. It's available on amazon.com. Make sure to check out our show notes at aom.is slash decision time. We find links to resources where you delve deeper into this topic. Well, that wraps up another edition of the AOM Podcast. Make sure to check out our website at artofmanliness.com where you can find our podcast archives as well as thousands of articles over the years about pretty much anything you think of. And if you'd like to enjoy ad-free episodes of the AOM Podcast, you can do so on Stitcher Premium. Head over to stitcherpremium.com, sign up, use code MANLINESS at checkout for a free month trial. Once you're signed up, download the Stitcher app on Android iOS and you can start enjoying ad-free episodes of the AOM Podcast. And if you haven't done so already, I'd appreciate if you take one minute to give us a review on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher. It helps out a lot. And if you've done that already, thank you. Please consider sharing the show with a friend or family member who think we get something out of it. As always, thank you for the continued support. Until next time, it's Brett McKay. Remind you not to list they went podcast, but put what you've heard into action. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. In a fast-paced world, every day brings new challenges and new opportunities. 
At Strayer University, we know a thing or two about getting and staying ahead of change. For over 130 years, we've been providing students like you with innovative tools and customized support. So you can find your way forward and always keep striving. Visit Strayer.edu to learn more. Strayer University is certified to operate in Virginia by CHEV and has many campuses, including at 2121 15th Street North in Arlington, Virginia.